You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 173, Treaties with France. The arrival of Benjamin Franklin in France at the end of 1776 had heralded great excitement in France. American liberty became a celebrated cause, and many French officers had crossed the Atlantic to participate in the great contest. The French government, however, took a much more cautious view. Kings rarely wanted to encourage excited calls of the people to overthrow their king, even if it was an enemy king. That sort of thinking could set a bad precedent that might you know, result in the King of France losing his head someday. Even so, many French leaders thought the American rebellion might be a great opportunity to weaken their British rival. An ongoing colonial rebellion would occupy the British ministry and sap the empire of men and money. A weakened Britain might allow France to retake some of the colonies lost to Britain in prior wars. At the same time, France was not prepared economically or militarily to go to war with Britain. Openly supporting the rebellion would bring on just such a war. So, despite the desire of the American commissioners to form an alliance with France, the ministry played hard to get. It refused to recognize the American diplomatic team in any official capacity or recognize American independence. Of course, France had been funneling covert military aid via the arms smuggling business set up by Silas Dean and Pierre Beaumarchais. Whenever Britain called out France in these activities, officials were always shocked, shocked, that a few bad apples were engaged in such behavior, and they acted quickly to shut it down. The greatest fear of those like French Foreign Minister Vergen was that they would get caught up in a war with Britain and that Britain would defeat or make a settlement with the Americans that would allow Britain to focus its full military might and wrath against France. That was the fear that prevented France from committing openly to support of the United States up until this time. The American commissioners in France, Benjamin Franklin, Silas Dean, and Arthur Lee, spent all of 1777 trying to cajole France into a commitment But rather than getting France to put a ring on it, they got more of a, come on, baby, you know I love you, but I can't leave my wife right now. We have to keep our relationship on the down low for a little longer. Through late summer and early fall of 1777, with news of Burgoyne's capture of Fort Ticonderoga and Howe's victory at Brandywine reaching Paris, the ministry thought the rebellion might be coming to an end. At that point, it ceased all written communication with the commissioners. Officials arrested a French ship captain accused of delivering war supplies to the Americans. 
and the government recovered several prize ships captured by the Americans which were in French ports and returned them to their British owners. If the rebellion was about to end, France wanted to be able to maintain its relationship with Britain, and it was perfectly ready to kick the Americans to the curb in order to protect themselves from British wrath. France's outlook on the prospects of the war changed when news of the surrender of Burgoyne's army at Saratoga reached France in December, and their behavior as a result also began to change. The victory at Saratoga was proof that the Americans were a serious challenge to the British. They could defeat an army of British regulars in the field and force the surrender of an entire army, something that not even European armies had done before. News of General Washington's defeat at Germantown also helped convince the French government that it was time to put a ring on it with America. Washington had lost at Brandywine and then lost Philadelphia to General Howe's army. For many countries, a military defeat and the loss of one's capital would force them to sue for peace. France was impressed that the Continentals were prepared to counterattack so quickly by striking at Germantown. It made clear that there was no intent to give up, even if this attack was not successful. In late November, Franklin received word that the Americans had defeated the British at Saratoga. The letter was written before Burgoyne's final surrender, but after it became clear that surrender was inevitable. Franklin passed along this information to the court of Versailles. Two days later, King Louis personally signed a request that the commission resubmit a request for formal alliance with France. Franklin took a couple of weeks to draft the proposed treaty, submitting it to Versailles on December 8, 1777. Although he would not know it for months, on the very same day, December 8, the Continental Congress at York approved an order for Silas Dean to return to America to give an account of his affairs in Europe. This was another leap in the long-running feud between Arthur Lee and Silas Dean. In earlier episodes, I talked about Lee's annoyance that Beaumarchais and Dean were benefiting from the covert aid that the French government wanted to go to America. The two men had arranged sales contracts to send war supplies on credit to America in exchange for promises of American tobacco to be sold in Europe. Lee wanted in on those contracts and the valuable commissions that came along with them. He had for some time sent word back to important people in America that Dean and Beaumarchais were ripping off America by selling war supplies that the French government had secretly offered to provide free of charge. Lee also complained that both Dean and Franklin had British spies working on their staffs and that they frequently refused to keep Dean up to speed about their discussions with officials at Versailles. Since Lee had two brothers serving in the Continental Congress, Richard Henry Lee and Francis Lightfoot Lee, his accusations had a ready audience. Others that were receptive to Lee's accusations included John and Samuel Adams and a number of other New England delegates who also had questions after hearing Lee's accusations. As they were on the verge of signing a treaty, Dean remained in France for several more months before his return home to clear his name. Lee's determined opposition to his two fellow commissioners, however, remained an obstacle to negotiations. 
Franklin and Dean largely seemed to keep Lee out of the details of many negotiations, as Lee had complained. However, they had to include Lee in the treaty discussions that began in December. They did not trust this man, and with good reason. Lee was still corresponding with men in London. Lee seemed to think that the British might be willing to come to a political compromise with the U.S. if they knew France was about to form an alliance. Lee had lived in London for many years, up until late 1776, when he received his appointment as a commissioner to Paris. He still had many friends among the Whig leaders in London. Lee was not the only leak, of course. Franklin's personal secretary, Edward Bancroft, was also a paid British agent. There were others on London's payroll as well. Pretty much nothing the commissioners did would escape the watchful eye of the North Ministry. Although France had called for the negotiations, it did not seem to be in any hurry to complete them. At first, France said it needed to operate in concert with Spain. France and Spain had their own treaty, which obligated France to get Spain's approval on any agreements related to the Americas. Spain had already worked with France to provide some covert aid to the Americans, so it was not like this would come as a complete surprise to them. Spain, however, quickly sent word back that they were not ready to support American independence and would not approve any treaty. With this, negotiations began to falter. France was happy to take its time getting there, but the Americans were not. They needed more aid, and they needed it right away. Also, there was always the danger of a military setback in America that could cause France to end the negotiation. At this same time, officials in London were on high alert that an alliance between France and the American colonies would drastically alter the balance of power. Britain could be fighting another war around the world to protect all of her colonies, many of which it had just taken from France and Spain in the 1760s. King George III approved deployment of an agent to open up negotiations with the American commissioners in Paris. The British sent Paul Wentworth, who was the same man who had recruited many of the spies who were currently working with the American commissioners. When Wentworth reached Paris, he sent a complex series of instructions to Silas Dean so that they could hold a secret meeting. His anonymous note instructed Dean that he could find a coach at a specific place on the road outside of town. There, Dean would receive a note instructing him to go to a room where he could meet with the secret negotiator. Dean's response was not quite so secretive. He sent a response back saying he would be in his office the next day and that if the caller wanted to stop by, Dean would be happy to receive him. Wentworth and Dean eventually arranged a dinner to discuss the outline of ending hostilities. London was prepared to allow the Americans to have their own Congress. The American colonies would not be subject to any internal laws enacted by Parliament. They would only have to respect Parliament's authority in matters of trade or foreign policy. Further, Parliament would repeal any objectionable laws that had prompted the ongoing protests since the end of the Seven Years' War. To further sweeten the deal, any Americans who helped secure this peace could receive knighthoods, peerages, jobs, money, or other rewards for their help. 
If Britain had made this offer in 1774 or even late 1775, the Continental Congress would have been ecstatic. It offered them everything they wanted, even more than the First Continental Congress had requested in its petitions. However, it was not 1775 anymore. America had considered itself independent for a year and a half. Two and a half years of war had split the two sides and split them irrevocably. Further, the Americans had proven that they could defeat the British militarily and had no desire to go back to being colonies. The one thing Britain did not offer was recognition of full American independence. And by this time, American negotiators would accept nothing less. The commissioners would not meet formally with Wentworth or any other British negotiators. Then, the Americans received word that Spain had rejected the alliance and would not recognize American independence. The momentum in favor of signing the treaty quickly evaporated as the French government reevaluated its position. Moving forward without its Spanish ally was a much riskier prospect for France. In response, Benjamin Franklin did take a meeting with British agent Wentworth during the first week of January 1778. According to Wentworth, he even went so far as to discuss the possibility of recognition of independence. Franklin agreed that this was a good offer, but added, pity it did not come sooner. It appears that Franklin had no intention of actually negotiating peace terms with Britain. Rather, Franklin wanted the word of his secret negotiations with Britain to leak back to French officials. If France believed that Britain and America might come to an amicable peace, France's chance to benefit from the British weakness would evaporate with it. By letting the French know they were talking to the British, Franklin forced Foreign Minister Vergen and the French to step up and negotiate a treaty without delay. Franklin's gambit worked. Two days after Franklin's meeting with Wentworth, French officials asked him what would be necessary to have the commissioners end their negotiations with Britain. Over the next few weeks, the commissioners worked with French negotiator Conrad Alexander Girard to produce a mutually agreeable Treaty of Alliance and Treaty of Amity and Commerce. The first treaty created a military alliance between France and the United States. It guaranteed that the United States would retain control of any land conquered in the war, including formerly French Quebec. France would take Bermuda and other island colonies in the West Indies that it had lost in the last war with Britain, as well as any other islands it might capture. Both countries would aid each other in the likely impending war with Britain, and neither country would sign a separate peace with Britain until the other agreed. Another article invited other countries to join their alliance. This clause was pretty clearly targeted at Spain, even if it had not mentioned the country explicitly. The treaty created a permanent alliance between the two countries, lasting beyond the hoped-for victory over Britain. The Treaty of Alliance, as I said, was one of only two treaties that the negotiators were trying to finalize. The other one was known as the Treaty of Amity and Commerce, and this one caused a little more controversy. The second treaty was essentially a trade agreement between the U.S. and France. 
You have to remember that there was no such thing as free trade during this era. Most of the larger empires required their colonies to trade only with the mother country and no one else. It was how they retained their wealth and power. Trade between sovereign countries did happen, but it was not a given. The Treaty of Amity and Commerce assured that the United States would have a European market for its trade goods and gave France access to much-desired raw materials from America. Beyond allowing general trade, the treaty pledged protection of vessels from the other country when in each country's jurisdiction. Each country would restore property to the other if captured by pirates. Privateers and warships could use each other's ports. Each country would provide protection to ships within their waters and provide assistance on the high seas. Neither side would commission enemy privateers against the other, nor would they allow enemy privateers use of their ports. Both countries would appoint consuls and agents to work out of ports in the other country. Authorities in both countries could search ships for contraband, but guaranteed due process for any contraband seized. On the high seas, ships of war or privateers could search merchant ships only once. Merchant ships would carry passports and manifests. Private parties of either country could purchase and own land in the other. They could not, however, fish off of each other's waters other than the banks of Newfoundland. Both parties also retained the right to trade with enemy states as long as the goods were not declared to be contraband. There was also an agreement that if the treaty ever ended, both countries would give the merchant ships six months' protection in their territory. This allowed for time to get the word out to merchant ships about the change in status. Now, two articles of the 33-article treaty caused some real contention. Arthur Lee, the only lawyer on the American side, objected to Articles 11 and 12. These gave the U.S. duty-free access to molasses from the French island colonies, but gave the French duty-free access to all exports from America. Lee believed this was too one-sided and gave a great trade advantage to France. The two other commissioners, Franklin and Dean, were not nearly as concerned. First, they just wanted a treaty in place, even if it was not perfect. Having a French trading partner would be a huge coup for the United States. Secondly, as merchants, they weren't exactly crazy about their own government being able to levy export duties on goods shipped abroad anyway. At first, Lee acceded to the other commissioners, but the next day insisted that they write back to the French negotiators and insist that Articles 11 and 12 be rewritten. The French, however, held firm and refused to make any changes. This dispute, which held up final ratification, became another source of dispute between Lee on the one side and Franklin and Dean on the other. By February 5, 1778, the two sides were ready to sign the treaties. Although Franklin was well-known in France for wearing his simple brown homespun coat to all events, on this occasion, he wore a much fancier blue velvet suit. It was the same suit he had worn almost exactly four years earlier in London when he was humiliated in the cockpit for his revelation of private correspondence. That incident had marked the end of his career as an agent in Britain. 
When Silas Dean asked Franklin why he wore the suit that day, Franklin responded, for a little revenge. And then he recounted his day of humiliation in the cockpit in London. Having shown up on the 5th, the commissioners were told that Gerard was sick and could not meet with them. Instead, they had to return the next day, February 6th. The commissioners, on behalf of the U.S. and Gerard on behalf of France, signed the treaty on February 6, 1778. Except Lee refused to sign the Treaty of Amity and Commerce. While Gerard's signature committed France to the new treaties, France still wanted to keep the treaty a secret for a few more weeks, while France still attempted to get Spain on board with the new treaty. The parties agreed to keep it a secret. Franklin then gave the treaty to his secretary, Edward Bancroft. The British spy immediately made a copy and had it in London less than two days later. A month later, on March 13th, the French ambassador in London formally informed the North Ministry that France had recognized American independence. Four days after that, on March 17th, Britain declared war on France. With all that out in the open, King Louis formally received the American commissioners at court for the first time on March 20th. Back in America, the Congress at York joyfully received news of the treaties. It did not receive the actual treaties until May 2nd, but as soon as it got them, approved them on May 4th. The next day, May 5th, it rejected Articles 11 and 12 based on Arthur Lee's letters, and those controversial trade rules would be removed from the final treaties. That aside, the treaties marked a new stage of the war. No longer would the war be a simple rebellion. It was now becoming a new world war between the powers of Europe. On May 5th, after receiving word of Congress's approval, Washington issued a general order that, quote, upon a signal given, the whole army will huzzah. Long live the King of France. Next week, we're going to hear how London is dealing with these very changed circumstances. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active.
Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks as always to Trey Nance and George Davis for their continued support at the Alexander Hamilton Club level on Patreon. Thanks also to James Kerrigan, who made a generous one-time donation via PayPal, and to George Waller, who made a generous one-time donation via Venmo. George is also a Patreon supporter at the Minuteman level, so I'm doubly grateful for the double support. This week, we looked at the final months of negotiations that led to the first Franco-American treaties, making France America's oldest ally. And before you all start sending your emails about how Morocco recognized the U.S. before France, I really don't consider that the same thing. You'll probably read on trivia sites on the internet about how Morocco was really the first country to recognize the United States. A few months before the treaties with France, Sultan Mohammed III of Morocco issued a decree opening ports to American ships. Because he explicitly recognized U.S. ships as being separate from England, people claim that this is an implicit recognition of American independence. But in larger scheme of things, the Sultan was just looking to allow more trade. It wasn't a treaty and really didn't do anything significant to benefit the U.S. or anyone else. So as far as I'm concerned, French recognition was the first real recognition of the United States as an independent nation, and France is America's first and oldest ally. Now, Benjamin Franklin gets most of the credit for convincing France to finalize the treaties, and I think deservedly so. Of course, events of the war were the most important factor in getting France to go along, but Franklin's popularity and his ability to play into French fears of a British-American conciliation and his general personality and getting along with the elite of France all helped to push along the negotiations. I think Silas Dean also deserves some credit, especially given the unfair criticisms that he would have to weather over the coming years. He really deserved better. Arthur Lee, the third commissioner in France, well, I still think he was more of a hindrance to the whole affair. In the months following the treaties, Congress appoints Franklin to become Minister Plenipotentiary of France and effectively head the diplomatic corps for all European relations with the United States. Silas Dean returns to America to confront the charges against him, which originated with Arthur Lee, and we'll be discussing those in a future episode. The charges generally were never proven, and in my opinion were completely unfounded, but they were nevertheless devastating to Dean's career. John Adams is already on his way to replace Silas Dean. Although Adams would go on to have a lengthy diplomatic career, he was not a particularly diplomatic guy and would regularly get into squabbles with his fellow diplomats. Arthur Lee, after all this, was supposed to go to Spain to work on an alliance with that country. The American commissioners would have been pretty happy to get rid of him. However, the Spanish would not let him into the country again. Lee, of course, had visited Spain before this, but Spain was not ready to go to war with Britain, and they thought that allowing an American diplomat into the country would only help push it toward that war that it was trying to avoid. Instead, Lee remained in Paris. 
eventually he would return to America and would end up taking a seat in the Continental Congress. We'll also hear more from the French negotiator of the treaties, Conrad Alexandre Girard, who will end up traveling to America to become France's first ambassador to the United States. And I'm sure his adventures in America will come up in future episodes. I've already recommended a few books in past episodes that discuss in detail the history of U.S. diplomacy in France during this period. And I relied on those books again for this episode. But since I've already mentioned them, I don't want to recommend them a second time. You can find them listed at the bottom of my blog entry for this episode or on my website under my list of past recommendations. But for my book recommendation this week, I'm going to recommend a newly published book on an entirely different topic. About a week and a half ago, I released a special episode interviewing James Kirby Martin about the Saratoga campaign. The reason Professor Martin was on the lecture circuit at the time was that he had recently written a chapter in a new book called The Ten Key Campaigns of the American Revolution. It's a good overall summary of the war with a separate chapter written by a different expert on the ten military campaigns that made up the Revolutionary War. The book's editor is Mark Edward Lender. As I said, the book was published just a few months ago and is available wherever you like to buy your books. If you really like to dig in-depth into a particular battle and you want a 600-page book on a one specific battle, this is not the book you're looking for. If you like the military aspect of this era and want to see a general summary that covers the entire war, then the 10 key campaigns would be a good book choice for you. So if that interests you, the book again is called The 10 Key Campaigns of the American Revolution, and the editor of the book is Mark Edward Lender. If you want to read more specifically about today's topic, the treaties with France, you might want to try this week's online recommendation. Archive.org has a pamphlet called The Treaties of 1778. This is a 70-page pamphlet that includes the treaties with side-by-side English and French translations. The first third or so of the book is a really great introduction into the topic that was written when the book was published. There's also the instructions that Congress originally sent to the commissioners in 1776, and it includes several other really helpful supporting documents that go along with the treaties. So if you like to geek out on primary source documents like I do, then you'll probably want to read the original treaties, and this is a good place to get them. The pamphlet was originally published by the Institut Francais de Washington, D.C. in 1928, just in time for the sesquicentennial of the treaty. For some reason, though, archive.org thinks it is still under copyright, which means you can only borrow the book. There are no permanent downloads. If you want full copies of the treaties that you want to download and keep, I have included links to other sources on my blog that will allow that download. I like this pamphlet, though, because, as I said, it gives a little more context to the treaties and includes lots of helpful supporting documents. As always, you can search for the document directly on archive.org or use the link that I've included on my blog for this episode at blog.amrevpodcast.com. Well, that's all for this week. 
I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts.